We're turning your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. We'll be getting there in a little bit. We'll be uh, camping out on Deuteronomy 6 here in a little bit. Intimacy, community, and influence. That's the prayer and that's the, the passion and, and the, the mission of Mission View. Our desire is that every single person would come into an intimate, living, vibrant relationship with our God. After they've entered into that relationship with our God, we want them to realize that they need each other because God designed us for each other. And we want to have community. And ultimately, as we have relationship with God and with each other, God wants us to have a relationship with the world. He wants us to have an influence. He designed you that way. He designed each and every one of us that way. And so that's what we're covering the first three weeks of our inaugural run. We are going to be looking at the intimacy, the community, and influence. And this week we're going to look at the intimacy that we are to have with God. Now, when I think about intimacy, there could be no greater intimate question than what we sang about. Is Jesus our Lord? I don't know if you noticed that those words were in some of the songs, but the idea that He is our Lord Jesus Christ. Is He really our Lord? Now, I know the initial reaction for some people would be, of course, you know, I accepted Jesus at such and such an age, and I, yes, I'm a believer in Christ, and yeah, I love, I love the Lord. Well, I really want us to pause and actually look at that from the historical perspective of when God first told us this. One of the first passages that we see such a blatant, uh, direct statement that we are to love God is in Deuteronomy 6. You know it? Deuteronomy 6, where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, your soul, your strength. Okay, that's what we are to do. But do we do that? Have we done that? Is that, is that true in our life? What was the context by which God was saying that? That's what we're going to learn today. We're going to look at the intimate setting in which God made that statement. I will tell you that there was some bad stuff that was happening with the people of Israel when God said this. And he was trying to direct the people that he had created, the people that he had molded, the people that he desired more than anything to have relationship with. He wanted, that was his heartbeat, that they would have that kind of relationship with the living God. But the problem is we as human beings have a tendency to always stray away from God. So do we have an intimacy with God? So we go back to the Old Testament and in Deuteronomy 6 we're going to see how, how Moses is going to give an explanation of the law. You see, in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, he had just given the Ten Commandments. We know them as the Ten Commandments. The Jewish people understood it as the guidelines or the moral laws that God had given. In a sense, it was kind of like an umbrella. And God was saying, okay, here it is. These are the guidelines. You are to stay under my authority, and these are the rules that I am giving you. Now what's interesting is these moral guidelines were divided up four and six. 
And the first four were the most important because the first four dealt with their, man's relationship with God. And the last six dealt with man's relationship with each other. Now I want you to notice the first two commandments that God gave in the Ten Commandments. Command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Now I want you to think about that. That's the number one thing that's on God's mind. That's the number one thing that God had on his heart to give to a people that he loved. You should have no other gods. Number two, he says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or anything, uh, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath and that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God and my jealous God. Now, as God has given these, he is doing it almost in a sense of a passionate plea of a father to his child. This is what I want. I want an exclusive relationship with you. And I don't want to share you with anybody else. And I want you to exclusively worship me because I am your creator. I am your God. And when you get this thing right, people of Israel, people of Mission View, when we get this thing right, our relationship with God, guess what? This thing here is going to be right. You're going to know how to love each other. And you're not going to covet your neighbor's possessions. You're not going to kill them. You're not going to lie to one another. You're not going to uh, desire their wife or their possessions. You're not going to do that because you're going to love one another. See, what God was doing was he was giving them the parameters. Now, you might be wondering, as I was wondering, as I was thinking about this message and praying through it, I thought, why in the world would these people of Israel want to chase after other gods? Why would they even think about it? I mean, if you understand the history of the Jewish people, you know that the God, the only God, was the one who did miracles for them. He was the one that made a promise to their, their forefather, Abraham. And when Abraham was 100 years of age, God gave him a son, and God did it miraculously. It was the one and true God that did that. It was the one and only true God that delivered the people out of Egypt. He was the one that brought the ten plagues. He was the one that divided the Red Sea. He was the one that gave them a pillar of fire and a pillar of clouds to guide them out of the land of Egypt. God was the one. He was the one and true only God who made every provision for them while they were in the wilderness. He made it so that their clothes didn't wear out. He gave them food for their bellies. They never went a day that they were hungry. God made gracious provisions for the people. Why would they go after other gods? But that is exactly what their problem was. I want you to understand why the problem was. Let's, let's establish that it was a problem. We know it was a problem because if you study the people's pilgrimage out of Egypt and Moses is up in the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the very commandments that we're talking about, guess what the people of Israel are doing? They're down saying, you know what, Moses isn't around and we really need something to worship. And so how about we worship a golden cow? 
Doesn't that sound like a grand idea? We should go ahead and make ourselves a cow. Now I'll tell you why I believe that they were able to do that and Aaron helped them in a minute. But this was a problem. If you study their history through the Old Testament, you will realize that the people of Israel did not discriminate against anything. They worshipped animals. They worshipped the sea goddess. They worshipped Baal. They worshipped Moloch, who was a Canaanite god. And so these gods were actually vile gods. The Moloch required a sacrifice of the firstborn child in order for the person to, to get what Moloch offered them. Often these false gods created a travesty for the people. And so this is what they did. Why? I believe there's two good reasons why. Number one, I believe it had to do with the fact that they came out of a land of false gods. See, there was a culture orientation towards false gods. Sound familiar? We today have a cultural orientation of false gods, and we'll establish that in a minute. Abraham, when he came, before he uh, understood who the living God was, he came out of Ur. And in Ur, guess who they worshipped? They worshipped in that land, that culture, they worshipped a god named Nana. Now, for me, Nana is the name of grandma that we give to our kids. But that wasn't the case here. Nana was the moon god. We see the people of Egypt, or the Israel, coming out of Egypt, and what do they do? They worship this golden calf. I think it's because they came out of 400 years of a culture where the Egyptians worshipped animal gods. See, culture had influenced the people of Israel. And when Moses disappeared and he was longer than they thought, they thought, well, let's, let's have, like the Egyptians, let's have a God that we can tangibly worship together and, and, and let's do that. And Aaron catered that. Now, they may have been thinking of the living God, but the end result, if you read the passage, is that as they worshipped this God, they ended up in revelry. And the word means that they, it was a kind of a drunken orgy that ended up, and God ended up bringing his judgment upon them. So we can say that the Israelites had a problem of societal influences. My friends, we have a problem of societal influences as well. The second reason that Israel did this is because, plain and simple, they made wrong choices. Do you realize that every time we sin, it is a choice? Every time we decide to go against God, it is a choice. And they made a choice. Even when God had given them the promised land, they still made the wrong choices. It's interesting, in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy was to prepare them to go into the promised land. And as, as Moses was writing that, in, in chapter 28, he gives this famous blessing and cursing chapter. And it starts out wonderful. He says, if you obey me, it's like God saying, if you stay under this umbrella, if you stay under my authority, under my protection, if you obey me, guess what I'm going to do for you? I am going to bless you. I am going to provide for you. I will take care of your needs. But if you exit from outside of that umbrella and you go on your own, I want you to know there will be judgment. There is a lot of pain 
and yuck in this world, and you're going to experience every bit of it. Once they possessed the the promised land, Joshua had helped them get rid of the people and the false gods. And it wasn't a job that was finished. And by the time we get to Joshua chapter 24, Joshua gives this famous speech. He says, choose you this day who you will serve. Will you serve the God of the Canaanites or the Amorites? Or will you choose to serve the one and only true living God? He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the true and living God. So this is what Joshua said to them, and yet we see the people of Israel disobeyed and they went after the false gods, the false idols. Why was this such a problem? Let me tell you why. I believe it was a problem because these idols were simply a gateway to them fulfilling their own selfish desires. If you were to study these idols and what it took, basically there's a lot of mysticism and superstition built in, but they believed if they sacrificed their child or if they did certain things, that in the end it would prosper them that they would be able to do whatever they want. It would make life easy for them. It it also ended up in sexual rituals. Can you imagine a man saying to his wife, well, you know, Baal requires me to have sex with a temple prostitute. i got to do what i got to do. And so you could see that there was all kinds of selfish motivation built in with this. Power, sex, financial gain, ease of life. This was a problem of selfish appetites. They had a problem of their societal culture, and they had a problem of their own selfish appetites. Now we come to Deuteronomy 6. And in Deuteronomy 6, we understand the culture in which Moses is writing this, and he says, okay, I'm going to give you the reasons for the moral law. Here's here's the positive news. I want you to see the good stuff that God has for you. Number one, it will give you a heritage if you revere God. Take a look at chapter 6, 1 to 3. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do in the land which you are going to possess it, that you may, underscore this word, Fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons. By what? Keeping all his statutes and his commands, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and all the days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your Father, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. See, this is the desire that they would revere God. The word fear here means a reverence for God. Notice that reverence comes as a direct result of obeying God's word. In other words, people of Israel 
and people of Mission View, there has to be a higher authority, and that has to be God. And as he is the higher authority, and we submit under that authority, what God is going to do is he's going to create a respect and a reverence for God. But if you are not willing to obey his word and listen to what he has to say, you will step out and you will not have that respect. It will all of a sudden become about you and what you want. And this is what God was trying to help them understand. Now notice, he says, your job, if you want this heritage, this culture of faith, you're going to have to teach it diligently to your children. You're going to have to teach, teach God's word to each of your children. Now, my friends, this is one of the reasons why at Mission View we want a solid children's ministry, why we appeal to have people pour into our children, because we want to see a heritage, a culture of God-fearing people raise up. Then Moses gives a summary of the moral law in verse 4 and 5. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. Now the word here is the Hebrew word for Shema. This was known amongst the Israelites as the Shema, the sacred Shema. This was a statement that they would say to one another. They didn't necessarily live it out, but they would say it. And it starts off with, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was the, God's way of saying that the Lord alone is the one you are to worship. He is the only God. This is a statement of exclusivity with God. What we're to do as a people is that we are to worship Him alone in a culture of polytheism, of many gods. We're to have monotheistic beliefs only one God, and this is what you're to do. You're to love him. Now the term love was an intimate term. When he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your, with your, with your strength, he's saying with your total being. There's not a part of you where God is not to ooze out of you because of the love of God. You are to embrace this God. You are to come alongside of him and submit to him, and he will love you as well. Notice the practical instruction, he says, in getting this message across. Look at verse 6. He says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Basically what he is saying is, I want God's word to permeate your life, and that it would seep out to your children, and that they would gain it. When, when our kids were small, we didn't have a whole lot of family devotion times. We did some on vacation, but we found devotion times in every aspect of our life. When we're driving down the road and we see a sunrise, we would talk about and attribute that to God. When, we would, uh, when my kids would come home and say, why is this F word on the toilet stall at school? 
We use that to teach what God is all about and what God has designed and man has corrupted. In every aspect of life, when we blew it and I would become the incredible hawk in anger, then it became a teaching moment for me to say, okay, I'm sorry, I blew it as your dad. And our desire as parents, and I believe the desire of God, is that we would, when we're lying down, when we're standing up, when we're walking about, in every aspect of our life, we are to imprint, impress. The word imprint means to be, make a, uh, an image, like a stamp upon a metal sheet. And that image is continuously there. And this is what I believe as parents. When we make that impression, there may be a time where our kids someday will go away from that impression. They will go away from God, but that impression is there and they are accountable for that. And I just believe in my heart that there will be a day where God will help them understand this is what it's about because it's deep within them. But we as parents have to create that environment for our children. We have to impress that. What we see here is that God wants his people to know that success is closely linked to this. We get away from this. We get away from success of what God wants to do in our lives. Well, the final thing that he does is he gives them a warning. You can read it in verses 10 through 12. And basically he says, don't forget you're going into this land uh, that you didn't purchase. That you didn't, you're going into houses that you didn't make. You're going to vineyards that you didn't plant. You're going to have all these blessings. Don't forget that I gave it to you. I have provided. Kind of an undertone in which it says those false gods, they do nothing because they really don't exist. See, what Moses wanted his people to do, and that you sense the passionate plea of Moses, is that we are to worship God alone. Is God my Lord? Now we move to the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 22, you can just listen. I will, it's basically the same thing that we just read. Jesus reteaches the Shema in his ministry. Someone asked Jesus, he says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, well, here's the greatest commandment. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But what's interesting is no longer Moses that's teaching it now. It is the second person in the Trinity. Whereas in the Shema, the Lord was only God. They didn't understand the Messiah completely. They didn't understand the second person in the Trinity. But now it is the second person in the Trinity. Now it's interesting that as Jesus is saying that, I believe the cultural context was the same in the New Testament it was in the Old Testament. The cultural context was that a land filled with idols. A land filled with the worship of false gods. And so instead of it being the Asherah, instead of it being Baal, instead of it being Moloch, it was other gods of that land. Even the Jewish religious leaders had kind of made gods out of themselves in their religions. It was kind of like the people of Israel making this golden calf. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, no, I want you to understand I am the Lord. Do you love me? 
with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. See, as Jesus says that, it is a challenge to the people back then, and it's also a challenge to us. See, that brings us to our evaluation to us. What about us? Is Jesus really our Lord? We live in a land filled with idols. Is he really our Lord? Or have we even as believers become distracted? It's interesting, after Jesus' ascension, after his resurrection and ascension into heaven, the Apostle Paul writes a thesis about what the church is to be about and what the gospel is to be about. And in Romans, he comes to this incredible passage in chapter 9, and he starts to think about the gateway in which we would have relationship with the living God. And he says this in verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, I've read that passage uh, lots of times. But all of a sudden, it has taken on new meaning as I have understood the idea of God and God alone, the exclusive nature that God demands of us. He says, Lord Jesus alone, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Please note that Jesus is clearly identified as the Lord. Whereas in the Shema, it's not clearly defined, but now it's come into clear focus. Why? Because it was always on the heart of God. Do you realize it was God's plan right from the beginning that there would be a Messiah, that there would be the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he would be the gateway into a new and intimate and vibrant relationship with mankind? We're told in Ezekiel about this relationship, how it was predicted. This is called the new covenant, what God was planning. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you life. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you understand that God's plan right from the beginning was that we would have an intimate relationship with the living God? That's his heartbeat. That's his desire. But the key, according to Romans 9 to having that relationship, it starts with a renouncing, a repentance of the things that have a hold on my life. My friends, what has a hold on your life? Let's be honest with ourselves. We cannot say, oh, I am not affected by idols. My friends, we don't worship, we're not affected by idols that we put on little shrines, at least in our culture, in Thailand, yes. We're not affected by that. But we are affected by this selfish desire to put ourselves first and to make it about power, to make it about success, to make it about sex, to make it about ease of life, to make it about whatever we want it to be. The bottom line is the greatest idol that any one of us are going to struggle with is the idolatry of ourself. It's interesting in Colossians 3 how Paul identifies an idol. 
he doesn't, end, he doesn't say a, 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 a little metal image. He says this. He says to believers, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is what? Idolatry. See, I always thought I didn't have any problems with idols. I mean, come on, not real problems, not like they do in Thailand or like they did back in the Old Testament. But I do have a problem with idolizing me and making it about me. And here's what he says. It starts when we confess Jesus as Lord and we abandon ourselves and we turn and align ourselves and our loyalties to the Lord our God, to Him exclusively. Why do we do this? He created us. He's our Father. He's our Dad. There's no other. And He, with a Father's plea, wants so much to have a relationship with each and every one of us. What's unbelievable is on a daily basis, I can meet with the very God who put the stars into orbit. On a daily basis, I have the opportunity to meet the creator of the universe, the one who knit me together in my mother's womb. I have that opportunity. And there's so many days where I just kind of pass by. I get busy with life. And what he wants is for us to align our loyalties daily and have him be our Lord. What does this mean practically? Practically speaking as a church, it means that if Jesus is our Lord, then we align our loyalties, our mission, our passion behind Jesus Christ. First John says this, Whoever says he abides in him, Jesus, ought to walk in the same way he walked. So what does that mean for us? I have two ways in which I want to challenge us today. The first way would be to simply confess Jesus as our Lord for salvation. If you are here today and this is kind of a new thing, this whole church thing is, is, is kind of a new idea, please understand it, the starting point, the gateway, is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection and coming to the place where you say, I will submit myself fully to you. Is he your Lord? I did this when I was 14. Before that, I was trying to do it on my own good terms. What I didn't realize was how disgusting my sin was before God and that I couldn't do it on my own. I simply had to say, okay, God, here I am. Take me. Have you done that? My guess is that a good portion of people, if not the majority, have laid their life down before him. So what should we take from this message? I believe that we have to have Jesus the Lord as our focal point. Here's five things that you're going to hear in keeping Jesus as our focal point that you're going to hear over the next weeks, over the next years, because it's about what we need to do. It's what Jesus modeled for us. Here's the number one thing that I would encourage every single person in, as a believer, is that you would passionately pursue God. Be honest with yourself. Has this been a priority? Or has this been a rusty sword? 
Has it been a priority for you to meet with God, to worship God, to passionately seek God? We're going to try to come alongside and help you to do that because His Word is important. Number two, that we are to live connected with one another. We see that as the church developed, that the church became something that was their lifeblood. They needed it for accountability. Folks, this can't just be an option, what we do here. It has to be our lifeblood, that we have each other and that we are connected. That's why next week we're going to talk about the community groups, being connected, doing biblical community together. That's why we're making it a priority right after the service for us to spend time just to get to know, do the one another's, encourage one another, pray for one another. It would thrill me if you were all drinking your uh, Java-deprived bodies, because I know you've gone a long time without it, but for you to sit around drinking coffee and for you to pray for one another, encourage one another. What an awesome thing that would be. Number three, we want you to engage your giftedness. If our focal point is on Jesus Christ, we need to engage in the gifts that God has given us. And the scriptures are very clear that he created us as a workman. And it's not about what I do or the leaders do. It's about what we do to impact God's kingdom. Number four, that we would steward our life. Do you realize that if we just proclaim Christ on Sunday and live how we want throughout the week, that is a poor example, and nobody is going to be drawn to that. What we have to do is we need to manage our time, our monies, our relationships, our bodies it's to be used for His mission and His glory. Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever we do, do all to the, the glory of Jesus Christ in word or deed. And finally, we're to share our grace story. Jesus gave the commission. This is our focal point. Jesus gave the commission. He said, go and make disciples. Every single person that has been transformed by God's grace has a story. Are you going to do that? Is that our focal point?